you know, for those days after Christmas, you know, you, you get to that point where you just walk into the fridge and, you know, you just hack a big piece off and walk around the house eating it. Uh, and then you get hammed out about, you know, sort of the 12th, 13th of January. It's about that point where you're like, that's it. I'm, I'm done with your ham. Can't do any more. This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Simplicity is one of the most beautiful yet challenging things to get right in food. When it comes to food, the sophistication and celebration in simplicity means there is no place to hide on the plate. To find produce at its optimum, then let it shine on the plate without too much interference takes bravery, knowledge and years of dedication to master. As the right-hand man to one of Australia's most celebrated chefs, Corey Costello is an unsung, talented chef with an uncanny ability to reveal the true character of quality ingredients. Corey Rockpool Bar and Grill is one of the country's best restaurants, but it's also one of the largest. It's huge. Like, how many staff do you have, and what does it take to run a restaurant of that size? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a bit of a beast. It's uh, sort of six two hundred guests at a time, so we can do anything up to. 350, you know, 400 covers if you include the bar area. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's, a big, it's a big restaurant. Um, back in the day, we used to have about 45 chefs and now we've got about 30. Um, and uh, yeah, it's probably about 20 on, an, 20 on per shift. And that, you know, that includes a butcher and a, um, a fishmonger and a baker, uh, you know, and then all the different sections of a regular kitchen. So it is a, one of the old school kitchens though, where we have, you know, a vegetable chef, we have a, a pasta chef, we have a larder section with, you know, three or four staff in it. And, um, yeah, we have the, the fish chef and a, a, a grill chef and then a plating chef. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a big, it's a big operation, uh, lots of sections. It's a huge, it's a huge kitchen as well. And I know there's not just the kitchen downstairs in, in the restaurant, how do you manage all of those different sections to ensure the the mass that high standard that you set? I have the most amazing staff you could ever imagine. Um, Santiago, who's the, the head chef there, he, he's he's been there um, for eleven years. Uh, you know, just shy of what I was. Um, my other sous chef there, Joel, he's been there for eleven years, um, and then my other sous chef, Perry, he's been there for five years. So, um, six years actually. So yeah, we're pretty, we're a pretty tight knit group. We, uh, we do a lot of stuff together. Um, we, we know each other very, very well. And those guys are so committed, um, to the, to the cause. And we had very good training from the likes of Khan Danis and Angel Fernandez and obviously from Neil Perry. So, you know, Neil, Neil's a, he's, he is who he is and he's very, um, yeah, he's intoxicating when you talk to him. Um, so yeah, he he's just one of those people that you you fall in love with, and he he just he he makes you sucks you into the dream, and and you you follow it. Having staff that stick around that long is is pretty rare. A lot of chefs move around all the time to get new skills and ob- obtain new experiences. Why do you think chefs are staying there for so long? Um, well, we try and, you know, do things. If we start to get a little bit stale, we'll do things like, okay, well, let's try and make this or let's try and have a crack at, you know, um, the, the cheese making episodes over the last few years have been a lot of trial and error and, you know, making it our, our own feta and goat's curd and, 
um, different stuff like that. Well, we, we've got goat's curd nailed down now, and that's that's a pretty easy one. But you know, just keeping ev- everyone um, keeping everyone entertained with with changing little bits and pieces like that because our menus so large and it doesn't really change a lot of the you know we change seasonally with different bits and pieces and we get ingredients in every day and we might play around with them but we've got the core part of the menu that doesn't really change um but yeah we try and i mean you know we get we do get boxes of goods delivered every day that you don't know what's coming sometimes and it's like well we need to make some side dishes out of this or a little entree so we do have a lot of flexibility with our supplies and because we write the menu once a day, we do have that, um, yeah, just that flexibility for some of the chefs to play around with. There's a Rockpool Bar and Grill in Melbourne and also in Perth. Do you guys sort of work together to keep the identity similar? I'm actually in Melbourne at the moment. <laughs> so I'm, uh, I'm, oh, wow. I'm, in, I'm in the Crown Towers having a look down the, um, the very, very beautiful um, Yarra, I think. It's very brown, so it's not that beautiful, but different to Sydney. <laughs> but, but, sorry, Melbourne people, but yeah, it's not as pretty. Um, yeah, so we we try and keep the um, the restaurants to have their own identities, and you know, use all the local things that happen that that all, all the produce that comes in. Um, but you know, with with today's um, today, well, it's, it's pretty hard at the moment with all the flights and everything. But we have a lot of supplies that we use uh that we use for all three venues so we'll um you know we'll we'll make you know we'll we'll talk to those suppliers fishermen farmers um you know cattle grazers and things like that and we'll we'll talk to them directly and we'll try and get them to to get us product um in all three venues so yeah this morning i've spent spent on the time on the phone to heidi and parva walker from um from up in walker's uh, seafoods up in Lullabar and ordering whole swordfish to to break down at the venues so um yeah and getting whole tuners and because we've got the other restaurants that are attached to them with um with rosetta and spice temple all three of uh, you know are, are pretty close we can sort of you know rip a loin off each and then use them up and then the next day do the same thing or you know so it does give us working for a big company has its um, ups and downs, but one of the ups is that you do get to get some amazing produce direct from the whole, you know, and, and not from a wholesaler, but direct from the from the grower. So, or the the fisherman. You mentioned you're in one of those rare positions to actually have an on-site butcher. Not many restaurants have that, and a, and a butchery section. You get in whole pigs and whole animals. Can you tell us about the process there and, and what you guys do with the meat program? Yeah, well, once again, that was, you know, one of those things. It's like, you know, the chefs are starting to get a little bit bored. Um, and, you know, at home on the weekends, I make, um, not on, on weekends, but once a year I make charcuterie, um, some salamis and, and, and st- stuff with the boys uh, in the garage. And after I started doing it at home on the weekend uh, in the winter, um, I thought, well, we should do this in the kitchen. So, We've always bought in whole pigs, but we would break them down in a different way and use them for things that weren't charcuterie. But then we started to try and master the arts of it, uh, which is a lot of trial and error. But yeah, so we've got we've got pretty good at it over the years. Um, so we use the legs um, for to making sort of traditional leg ham, so smoked ham, uh, like a fourteen day or eleven day brine, and depending how big it is and um, yeah, the cooking process and then smoking them 
Uh, we tried smoking them above like, just our fire, but it didn't work. You really need that intense sort of wood chip smoke. Um, the, the subtle smoke off the fire just gets a bit acrid after you leave it up there for a bit while long and it's a bit warm. So not ideal. So yeah, we do that with the legs and with the shoulders, we make some lovely chorizo, which is a, um, Angel Fernandez's recipe. And then, um, we have, uh, some pork and sort of fennel sausages that we also make. And then we use the bellies for a dish on the menu. We cure some of them, um, and yeah, we make some salamis too out of some of the shoulders when we don't have the uh, when we don't have the sausages in need. So it's um it's a bit of fun, and you know the guys really get into it. Um, we try and you know when you get the whole pig in, it's good watching watching the you know the the younger chefs try and break it down, and then mm. uh, watching the butcher do it in about one tenth of the time, <laughs> um, and, and you feel like you really you know you're not a very good chef. When he holds it up and just, you know, holds the hind quarter up and just goes bang, bang, bang and five knife moves, he's taken, you know, the legs off and the shoulders off um, and then you've just got this, you know, six parts to a pig. You're like, wow. Wow. And then you do it. It's like 20 minutes. Fuck, <laughs> you're really quick. Um, yeah, so, yeah, so it's um, one of those things. It's, uh, yeah, it's just fun playing around with that sort of stuff. We do brisolas as well with the front of the um, – with the rounds off the and the drellos off the um, David Blackmore Wagyu bodies we get. So the guys have a bit of fun playing around with some of the charcuterie. Um, and it's a great product and it just gets you really involved in the food. It gets you sort of so that you you feel like you're very much a part of it. I just want to go back a little bit because I just find it astounding that you started making charcuterie in your garage and it's led to Rockpool Group producing their own in the kitchen. Can you take us back to... <laughs> <laughs> to when you started trying to make it in the garage. Yeah, my next door neighbor, I'm uh, not a very Italian or, you know, European bloke at all. He's got red hair and he's, you know, born in Chatswood. Um, <laughs> but he, and he's a cabinet maker, so he's got nothing to do with food. But um, he wanted to, um, he, he bought a pig off a, a, a saw sharpener that sharpens his blades for his um, cabinet making, um, who has a hobby farm. Um, and the guy said that he, he, um, uses the pigs and takes parts of it and then makes a little bit of salamis out of the shoulders. And so we thought it'd be a good idea to go up there and get one of these pigs. So we had to, you know, go up there and I've never, I've never touched a gun in my life, but my mate's quite a redneck. He's been to the States a lot. So he knew what to do. So we had to go and call the pig over and get it to the fence and, you know, give it a happy ending. And, uh, and uh, that was it. So we hung it up and gutted it and did all that and bled it. Uh, it's very warm. A, a, a dead pig. I wasn't expecting it to be so warm when I first did it. And they said, well, you got it. You're a chef. So I didn't know what I was doing. But, um, yeah, we made, uh, we made some sausages out of parts of it and we, uh, you know, cooked, cooked some of it and then made, made a very, very small batch, about four kilos of salamis and hung them up in the garage and they were great. And then the next year we – did the same thing at the same time of year. So you always do it um, around the middle of July or the, the start of the end of July, just depending on the weather. You don't want it to get too warm during the day. So you need it to be the, so that the temperature doesn't get above sort of 15 or 18 degrees. Because um, if you hang them up in the garage, you don't want them to dry out too quick. And if it's a bit too warm, they, um, you know, they, they can dry out very quickly. So they get hard casing and that's... Um, We've learnt the hard way um, 
the first year I think we did four or five kilos. The next year we did 10 kilos. And the next year after that, we're like, oh, we've, we're experts at this now. We'll do 40 kilos. Um, we threw 40 kilos pretty much in the bin. Um, yeah, it wasn't great. And um, that year as well, we decided to drink quite heavily whilst making them. Um, which everyone said that that's the reason they were bad, but it wasn't. It was actually the, the drying process and we didn't have enough humidity in the room and we didn't, um, it was a bit warm um, and it sort of dried the room out. So yeah, child's humidifiers and what we use now um, and stick one in the room and test it. Yeah, so this year we made um, 120 kilos, which was great. We had a big, a whole bunch of different families and then everyone gets together and, I think my girlfriend was was pretty hammered by about 10:30 in the morning because she made Aperol spritzes and then just kept going. Um, so yeah, it was a it was a good day. The kids get involved and everyone has a bit of a mix, and you know your hands feel like ice cubes because you have to keep the meat so cold. Um, so you do it at, you know crack of dawn, six or seven in the morning, and we did it at my mate's house up at Duffy's Forest. So he's got a lot of land and a big garage, and it was nice and cold in a wintry morning. So it was good, and then hung them up and. Yeah, you wait three weeks and then uh, you're ready to go. But they're best after about six months. So I haven't eaten any of mine yet. Some of my mates have all started hoeing into theirs. But mine are um, mine are still sitting in the cool room at Rockpool, actually. So we'll, uh, I'm looking forward. I'll probably give a few out for Christmas presents. Wow. Well, you mentioned that there's been a lot of hit and, hits and misses and sort of challenging moments to try and get it right. What, what do you think makes great charcuterie? Uh, I don't know. Eh? <laughs> like it's every year it's different. So I don't know. Like you follow the same recipes and you do the same thing. And it's just every year, like some years they're a bit chewier and then some years they're a bit drier and some years they've got like a really, like the fermented, um, you know, the, the lactic, um, taste is, is really strong. Um, so they're quite acidic. Um, and I think all of them I like, I think if it's just, if it's well-made, in the fact that it's not too salty and it's salty enough, that's probably the key thing. And then the texture of it, if it's not mealy, it can't be mealy. Um, it's sort of got a set. Um, yeah, so it's, it's one of those things. Every year we make it and it's a little bit different. So we, we make two types when we do it. We do like a Spanish um, chorizo version and then we do uh, like a classic Italian version with fennel and, and chili through it, like chili flakes. Um, red wine. You, we drink as much red wine ever, and the rule is you've got to drink as much red wine and white wine that you put into them whilst you're making them. So if you put, we had ten bottles that we needed to to do. So we had we had five bottles of the of the red, and then we have a big lunch at the end of it. And so you take some of the meat out, um, and you, you you fry up all the meat and then toss it through pasta. And when you've done, you all have this big pasta meal with the salami meat in a fresh form. So it's just like sausages. So have a beautiful sausage pasta and um, if, you're, if you're a real good wog, you've got the passata that you've made in summer and you tip a bottle of passata in it with your salamis and a little bit of the salami from the year before. So that's um, we've learnt that that's the way the, the proper proper wogs do it. So we, we tried to get involved. Um, yeah, it's good. It's good. You, you mentioned earlier that the different uh, rock pools like to source local ingredients, but as a group you like to connect with producers across the country that have an outstanding product that you guys like to menu and there's a real emphasis particularly Neil Perry's always been produce produce driven can you tell us what, what is the ethos at, at Rockpool and, and what is it what what ends up on the plate 
Well, I mean, Neil, Neil's always, you know, if you're going to do something, you get the best of everything, you know, whether, it, whether it's, you know, you sit on a chair in, in one of his restaurants and it's the best chair it can find, uh, you know, the pepper, the pepper mill is the best one he could possibly buy. Um, and he, that, that ethos runs right down to the produce. So um, if we think that someone has something that's, you know, better or of just of really good value for us, um, then we'll try and get it. Um, and we'll do our, we'll do as much as we can to try and ensure that we do get that product. Um, so a lot of my job is, is talking to suppliers, uh, new suppliers, old suppliers, just anyone that has anything. So we get sent samples of all different types of things, crazy stuff. Um, once a week, you know, twice a week, we'll get someone come in and say, I've got this product. I've got this product. Would you like to taste one? Would you like to see? Um, and then we get all the sort of senior chefs together and we might do a little tasting of it and do a side-by-side -side comparison and then say, what's the verdict? And, you know, sometimes we, we might get to find a new product and other times uh, we, you know, say to them, well, you know, I, I don't think it's as good as the product that we have here. So, um, you know, but if something ever happens to that, which does happen, um, you know, there's, there's producers that go out of business and um, you have supply chain issues. So, it's good to keep um, everyone happy, and we, we, you know, Neil always taught me, no matter who it is, you always sit down with them, give them the time of day, um, hear out what their story is about the product, and and try some. So it's just common courtesy to do so, and we we try and have that that ethos uh, in all of the Rockpool restaurants. With that emphasis on such quality produce, what do you do to it in the kitchen, and is there a pressure to keep the integrity of that high quality product? Yeah, well, I mean, anyone that's eaten at Rockpool Bar and Grill in particular knows that we don't really do too much to any of the food except for treat it beautifully. You know, we're, we're very fortunate. We have, you know, six cool rooms and, you know, we have a fish cool room. We have two beef cool rooms. We have um, a finished product cool room, a vegetable cool room and a dairy cool room. And so um, then we've got little charcuterie fridges um, and that's just the the, the – the prep side of it and then you've got service fridges so everything must live in its place in a temperature controlled environment that's suited to that product um, methodical cleaning methodical everything that goes into it temperature checking um, so you know if a fisherman's gone to the effort to catch a piece of fish and keep it absolutely perfect um, when it gets to us then we want to ensure that that's that cold chain that supply chain is perfect the whole way through um, and then I think you can taste the difference. Well, I think most people can taste the difference. Um, if you have something that's been perfectly prepared from the time it leaves the ground or the ocean or, or gets killed to the time it goes onto the plate. And, you know, sometimes we'd, we'd have people that go, well, you just put a piece of steak on a plate with a lemon. Well, you know, where's the sauce? Where's this? And it's like, well, just try it on its own and then tell me what you think. Because um, when, you, when you're not covering it up with a sauce or you're not doing something to it or serving it with something to mask the flavor, there's nothing to hide behind. So if you slightly ruin that produce with over-seasoning or um, undercooking, overcooking, not resting, uh, all, all the little bits and pieces that go along with cooking, in particular, in, in particular proteins, then uh, there's nothing to hide behind. You can't you can't put a little bit of extra of this on and say, well, it's, it, it'll, it'll balance out. Uh, there is nothing to hide behind. It's just that on a plate. Neil Perry is one of the most known Australian chefs on the planet. But what's he like to work with? Um, 
and I mean, I've, I've worked with him for 11 years and I think we've had two arguments uh, in 11 years and I've seen him get angry probably three times. He's very, very calm and very, he's got a very cool head about him. Uh, he's a child still. And if Neil ever listens to this, uh, he'll, he'll, <laughs> he'll know. But um, yeah, he's, he's 62, um, well, he's, he's 21 in a 62-year-old man's body. Um, and he's 62, but he keeps very young. Uh, he still likes to joke around. He's still, uh, you know, he's still a chef in the kitchen when he comes in and, and plays around. And, yeah, you'd think he was 21 with the amount of energy and enthusiasm he puts into everything he does. Um, yeah, he's, uh, he's, you know, he's a great role model and a great mentor to any chef. Uh, you know, he's one of the pioneers of, of changing Australian cooking to be Australian cooking um, instead of copying Europe and, um, and copying, you know, parts of, of, of the world, he really put his own mark on it and said, this is what I want to do. Earlier in the year, he sort of announced a, some sort of a retirement, but he seems busier than ever. Is, is he still uh, influential on the day-to-day runnings of the restaurant? No, he, he's, he's pretty much out of the restaurant now. Um, but when I say out of the restaurant, he comes into the restaurant every day. Um, we have coffee every day almost. Uh, we have a chat. I've spoken to him twice today um, from Melbourne. So, yeah, he's still there. He just doesn't um, make any decisions really anymore or, or get involved in the day-to-day running sort of business of it. But he's there just to mentor everyone, uh, mentor everyone in the kitchen and just to be a positive sort of influence on everybody. And that's, um, that's what he is. So he's the worst at being retired ever. Like he doesn't play golf or <laughs> tennis or go swimming. He doesn't, his hobby is eating and, and drinking wine. So uh, he just spends his time at a bar and grill doing that. And then he goes down and sees Andy Evans and Spice Temple and has some dumplings and has a glass of wine and talks food and talks produce. And yeah, he's constantly sending me messages about this or that, or have a look at what this is. You know, he's just, he's so enthusiastic about food and cooking. He just can't, he can't get it out of him. I think he's just, well, that's what he is. What's the greatest thing that he's taught you? Um, probably to respect, you know, to care about everything. I mean, he's got a, a care philosophy, which he talks about, which is, you know, just, you know, care about, care about your environment, care about the produce, um, and, you know, care about your fellow workers, um, you know, care about all those things. And if you care about all those things, then the guest, when they come to the restaurant, is already looked after because you've made an effort to care about all the things before that. Um, and it's when you first hear it, you sort of go, oh, it's a bit sort of, you know, cliche, but if you actually think about it and follow to those, to those steps, then it really does mean that when the guest comes in, they get looked after. So yeah, he's very much about caring for every part of every part of what you're doing. You've been with Rockpool Bar and Grill for over a decade, but how did you get a start in the industry? Yeah, I've got long service. <laughs> um, yeah. um, I was. I used to go out and work at Flemington Markets. Um, uh, my uncle has a has a, a stall out there, selling the barrows at the end of the like, renting them out to the people at the ends of the markets. Um, so all the fruit and veg guys would get there and to save room in your van to buy your produce, you'd rent a barrow that way you could fit an extra couple of boxes in. So he's an old Italian. Uh, I think he took one holiday in his, in his life and hated it. Um, you know, 50 years of working with one week holiday in Hawaii and he 
hated the, every single minute of it because someone was, you know, the, the business was failing at home. So uh, I worked uh, out there and just saw all this amazing produce as a, as a, as a teenager. And, you know, we'd walk around and, and what's that, what's that, what's this? And, um, yeah, I just sort of started looking at produce in a different way and then started to get into cooking a little bit at home. Um, and, yeah, then it just sort of went into it. My, my grandfather had some Airbnb, like Airbnbs. My grandfather had some bed and breakfasts up in uh, Queensland and used to, used to um, you know, have people up there in motels and I'd go and hang out in the kitchen with him sometimes and I, I just I, it sort of just fell into it really and I think I was pretty I was a terrible student at school I they tried to kick me out so many times and you know I think chefing will take anyone no matter how bad you are you know if you're the if you're the scum of the earth you can always still be a chef um so you know we get a colorful bunch of kids that have come through and I was one of those colorful kids you know I was not not a very good teen uh you know always in trouble and stuff and uh so, yeah, chefing, you know, there's no, there's no, you don't need any qualifications except to have a good palate and really want to eat nice food and make nice food. So, yeah, it's, um, it's a great, great job there for anyone that's maybe fallen off the rails and needs a solid, solid base for life. In the lead up to joining Rockpool, what, what was the main influences on your career as a chef? Um, I think I've, I've said Angel Fernandez from, um, he, he was the chef at Catalina, um, for, for many years. And he was, uh, he was one of Neil's sort of star apprentices, um, at, from Rockpool way back in the, in the nineties. And so I went and worked with Angel as an apprentice at Catalina. Um, and yeah, he, uh, he was working when Rockpool Bar and Grill opened in Sydney. He was working there and said, oh, would you like to come along? And at the time, I was, uh, I'd been working up at um, Hayman Island and with Peter Caravita and Flying Fish. And, uh, yeah, he, Angel asked if I wanted to come. And Angel taught me so many things about food that I thought, yeah, I'm going to come back. And because, you know, he was just such a pleasure to work for. He, he really taught me about eating. Angel had the most... Uh, he just he could not like if something would come in and it was you know beautiful he would eat it straight away there was no there was, he just like bang I'm, I'm eating that I can't I can't serve that to someone I need to eat it myself and I remember like catching him in the cool room just smashing cheese and eating this so he just used to eat and eat and eat and he'd teach everyone why would you serve that you know that's not something you want to eat eat it tell me what it's like talk to me about what it tastes like. So he was very, very big on eating. Uh, and so we tried to, yeah, I love, I love that, that spirit of his. He wasn't out to try and make the, the world's most, you know, fancy food or reinvent anything. He just wanted everything he's put onto a plate to taste delicious. Yeah, he's down in Melbourne too. He's just come back from New York. So I'm going to try and catch up with him while he's here. Um, and then, you know, Neil, Neil Perry as well is just a, a great influence and, and Neil taught Angel. So it's the same sort of philosophies and, you know, Angel got them from Neil pretty much. Um, and Peter Caravita, who I worked for for a while, was a, a very, very, very astute businessman um, and very, very good in the kitchen. Um, just, yeah, an absolute, I remember him sort of telling me, you know, if you're going to work for someone, make them money. Um you know, it's a lot of chefs cook for ego out there. Um, and a lot of chefs, you know, cook to, 
you know, win awards or try and recreate something and think, forget sometimes that they're cooking for guests who are paying to eat there. And, you know, if you don't have guests in your restaurant, then you're not paying the bills. And if you're, you know, if you're, if you own your own restaurant, then you'll find very, very quickly that you need to pay those bills. And if you're working for someone and they own the restaurant and, you know, you don't have customers because you're cooking for your ego, then it's not a good good spot to be in. Um, so Peter Kravita taught me very early on that if you're cooking, you need to make money for your owners uh, or, you know, because one day if you want your own restaurant, you need to make money for yourself. And, I mean, that's very evident now. There's probably a lot of restaurants that, you know, after COVID, um, you know, won't, won't come back because, you know, they maybe weren't really making that much money. Um, and it's a hard game. The margins are so tight. You said to anyone, you know, invest this much money for this much return. No one would do it. You really have to love doing it. Um, but at the same time, you, you, you have to pay bills. So you've traveled the world uh, with Neil for, uh, on behalf of the Rockpool Group. What's, what's some of the most amazing experiences that you've had? Um, well, last year I told Daniel Blue that he was looking a bit old and he punched me in the stomach. That was, that was pretty funny. Um, but yeah, I mean, stuff like that, I, I sort of take for granted sometimes when I, when I used to travel and do things, particularly now, um, you know, now the highlights going to Melbourne, but, um, yeah, you know, working with some of those chefs over in the States was, has been unbelievable. And, um, you know, in Singapore as well, when we go over and do the Grand Prix, you know, you get to rub, rub shoulders with some of the world's elite people. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm, humbled by it um a lot and it's um yeah i have to i'll I'll look back and and think i should have probably taken photos and and selfies with all these famous chefs that i've worked with around the world but i never did um yeah it's a yeah i feel very privileged and also you know when neil used to do the big um charity events for for the starlight foundation when we'd have you know the lights of likes of you know grander cats come and um heston blumenthal and you know thomas keller um, you know, cooking alongside a team like that, you know, and Doni from Muggeritz, you know, standing there and having him explain his dish to you um, and taking you through the journey of it with his chefs. And, uh, you know, those, those things are pretty, pretty special. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's nice when you go overseas and you get to, to, to do that, or even when we do it here. Um, I think yeah, the last one we did was in New York with, with Daniel Ballou and, um, was, yeah, some, some very, very talented chefs that were working alongside there. And I think Daniel had one from each continent. So, um, yeah, it was, it was great. And, you know, hanging out in this beautiful kitchen in New York with all these, you know, great chefs and drinking some amazing wine. So I'm, I'm very privileged. And, you know, when I think about it, you know, being a scumbag teenager, uh, with no education that got kicked out of school pretty much to, um, to, you know drinking thousand dollar bottles of burgundy in new york uh it's um it's a nice it's a nice thing to do well you've even uh cooked prawns on the rooftop of a building overlooking new york uh with neil can you tell us about that i did i got a sunburnt head <laughs> yeah that was for the um for the world's 50 best um i remember um i was up on the rooftop of the nomad hotel which is daniel daniel hum's um uh restaurant that he has he's got the two over there with Madison and that one. And, uh, I did a, we did a rooftop barbecue with, with Peter Gilmore and, um, with Ben Shuri and a, and a couple of the other, um, Dan Hunter. And 
it was uh it was it was good we um we're all up on the roof there um cooking and i was in the sun cooking prawns on a barbecue drinking a cooper's um tourism australia are like very keen on getting some photos of the chef on the on the on the rooftop but it was 30 degrees it was sunny and you know the empire state buildings in the background um but i had to ask for some sun cream because i'm bald and i've got no hair uh, so my head was like this bright red thing you know it was just, I was drinking these Coopers and cooking these prawns and um, yeah, it was great. All the, all the, you know, the, the sort of top 20 chefs all got invited, hung over to come up and have this Australian breakfast on the balcony. Um, and, you know, so they all walked up and were, you know, having a chat with, with us and um, it was great. They were like, wow, I'm with the Australian chefs and we're, you know, we're having, you know, prawns on a barbecue and, and a beer for breakfast. Is this what you guys do in Australia? I'm like, yeah, once a week, you know, that's, that's how we live. You know, Sunday mornings, it's they fire up the barbecue, have a prawn and smash a beer. Um, so, yeah, we, we laid it on for them. Uh, I think the year after we had the, the World's 50 Best Restaurant Awards in, in, um, in Melbourne. So, yeah, it was good going down for that as well. And we did the, we did the food for that. Uh, we did the catering for that, uh, you know, for all the best chefs in the world again. And I uh, had a lot of good chats with a lot of the, the chefs there. And I've met, met some very nice uh, chefs from some of the best restaurants in the world and become friends with them. And... It's very handy if I can ever get back overseas. It's nice, um, you know, giving them a buzz and saying, oh, hi, it's Corey from Australia. We met a few years ago and we did that event. So it's very nice when you go into someone else's restaurant too in their country and they show you how hospitable they can be. You mentioned a little earlier that when you get whole pigs in at Rockpool, you break them down and you make charcuterie, but you keep some of it for dishes as well. Could you tell us about the sort of dishes that star on the menu utilising that? Yeah, well, the, um, the we do like a little pork chop at the moment with the, with a loin. Um, we do it with some some whey that we make from the goats. We get lots of whey. We're always trying to think of things we can do with whey because um, we have so much of it from the goats goats cheese that we make. Um, so we do a little whey caramel. We reduce it all down and with black pepper and curry leaves um, with the pork chop. Uh, we have a squid squid and pork belly dish where we cook the pork belly for twelve hours and then it gets fired into a charcoal oven at 500 degrees so it gets you know sort of nice and colored up um and then with some roasted red onions and uh the pork belly and the squid it's uh, been an old favorite um we have the smoked ham that we we do a little ham plate with some pine garner two-year-age cheddar um two-year-old aged um cheddar so it's just the ham and the and the and the pine garner cheese which they especially uh put aside for us um another one of those great things that we're lucky to be able to buy a, a whole wheel of their cheese for um that they don't sell to anyone else um yeah so those those things are all nice and then we do the the sausages as i said before the chorizos which we used to make a hot dog which i loved but they weren't very good for you i used to smash one of those hot dogs oh that was that was so good um we still make the sausages but we use them for a dish now but we don't have the hot dog on the on the menu anymore in the bar but i'm I put it back on when I get home. It's damn tasty. So, yeah, I mean, the sausage making is one of those, um, you know, if we don't have the sausages on the menu, we have people complain and ask for them to come back. Um, we use the same sausage uh, filling uh, for little, little sausage rolls that we make, which I make at home on the weekends as well with the pork. So I made some of them for the kids on the weekend. They were great. You throw some pistachios through there and some fennel seeds on top of the puff. And, uh, yeah, my sausage roll making skills are pretty good now it's good don't mind a sausage roll 
we're heading towards Christmas and uh, you do like to have a gathering with friends and, and feed a lot of people. Um, do, you, do you have any sort of go-to dishes for Christmas and are you a kind of a baker ham sort of person or do you prefer it to be in the fridge and just cut it off when you want some? Uh, in the fridge, in the fridge and cut it off. Yeah, definitely in the fridge and cut it off. And just, you know, for those days after Christmas, you know, you, you get to that point where you just walk into the fridge and, you know, you just hack a big piece off and walk around the house eating it. Uh, it's, you know, you get to that point of, of uh, and then you get hammed out at about, you know, sort of the 12th, 13th of January. It's about that point where you're like, that's it. I'm, I'm done with your ham. Can't do any more. Um, yeah, which is uh, it, it's well for us. But we, um, for, for our, our guests at Rockpool Bar and Grill um, that are, you know, sort of the top 20 people that we have that come into the restaurant. So we have, we have a very loyal following, you know, people that come in three or four times a week for lunch or dinner. Um, and so we've got this list of people that, that come in a lot of times. Um, and we give them a Christmas ham as a gift that we make. So we make um, hams. We've already started making the hams. We make about four a week. Um, and yeah, we just do half hams for them. And then on, uh, we let them know sort of a week before Christmas that we'll be giving them a little Chrissy present of a, of a ham and, uh, they all very much appreciate it. And it's a sort of like a badge of honor, um, you know, come and spend a hundred thousand dollars over the course of a year and we'll give you a ham. <laughs> um, so, um, but it's, it is very nice and, you know, they're, they're great customers, um, yeah, and then they love getting the hams, and they they tell me, you know, the ham lasted me all the way up until this point or this point. So, yeah, I I love doing a ham. I always do a crackling, crackling pork belly or a, um, a loin. I like probably the belly more than the loin. The loin um, is nice, but I like the fattiness of the belly. And so, yeah, nice nice crackling pork belly on Christmas Day, and it's, that's the only thing I pretty much do hot, and the rest of it, you know, that usual prawns and and ham and a swim and um, when we're done with the ham bone, I, I, that means it's time to go fishing because we always use the ham bone and chuck it into some crab nets and then take it up to um, pit water and try and catch some blue swimmers with the with the ham bones. Um, best 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 bait out there you'll find is a smoked ham bone. You're guaranteed to get a blue swimmer. Actually, no, that's not true. No one go up and go to the hall and go go anywhere near pit water. I need, yeah, and don't check my crab pots either. <laughs> amazing steal my crab well mate i yeah. um i'm i'm with you exactly on the ham in the fridge um over christmas i like to hack a piece off at any time of day and and i also don't mind the the beer for breakfast theory i might introduce that into our family over the summer i'm sure that'll go down well yeah yeah prawns and beer for breakfast is perfect <laughs> uh cory we've loved having you on the crackling mate you're a bloody legend um keep in touch and we'll talk again soon Hey, thanks for the chat, mate. It's been great. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.